Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And, and you know, I, I like to say that I've got a treat for you every time I start the episode because we've had such great guests on, but I, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit giddy today. I'm a little bit like this uh, uh, th- this fan who's who's getting to interview one of uh, these just iconic mentors who he didn't even know he was my mentor. Uh, few people have been influenced day to day management of people and companies more than today's as an influencer more than today's guest Ken. Blanchard. And I will tell you, Ken has been an author, a speaker, a business consultant for decades. He's written, I don't know, over 60 books now. He's been published time and time again. He's been featured as a speaker all across the world. I couldn't even begin to do justice to what Ken has offered the world in terms of value. Uh, most of you know his best-selling iconic book, The One Minute Manager, but he's he's written over 59 other books. He's been translated into 47 languages. He's sold over 28 million copies. He's in the Amazon Hall of Fame for top 25 best-selling authors. He's created one of my favorite leadership models of all time, situational leadership, and then subsequently situational leadership too. And more than anything else though, He's just a genuinely, incredibly good guy who believes in giving back in the servant leadership model. And I couldn't be more honored and humbled to get to interview you today, Ken. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Well, Jeff, it's a real pleasure. You know, just listening to you, I wish my mother was around. She would have really believed it. You got to tell it like you sell it, right? Your mom would have been uh, would have been so proud. So, well, speaking of that, Ken, let's uh, let's let's tell the audience some things maybe that they don't know about you. So let's go, let's go back to your early days. I mean, you've got you sound like from what I know about you, you had a great influence in both your 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 mom and your dad. T- tell us a little bit about that upbringing and how they kind of molded a lot of the beliefs that ultimately led you to be this prolific leader that you've turned into. Well, let me first talk about my dad. He uh, he grew up at West Point. His father was a doctor <coughs> at, in Highland Falls, right at the gate of West Point. And he loved West Point. He sat in the back of Douglas MacArthur's graduation speech. He saw Jim Thorpe run the two touchdowns back. And so he wanted to go to West Point. His father said, no, son, I think you should go away to school. He said, well, if I can't go here, I'm going to go to Annapolis. So he went to the Naval Academy and <coughs> graduated in 1924. They didn't think they needed naval officers in 24 because we had just ended World War One. And so at the end of his senior cruise, they uh, dismissed him. And he ended up in January 25 going to Harvard <coughs> Business School and ended in finance. And then he went down onto Wall Street and started to build his careers. But he made a vice president of National City Bank. And he came home uh, in 1940. I was one year old and said to my mother, well, I quit today. She said, you did what? He said, yeah, I quit. She said, to do what? He said, I rejoined the Navy. She said, you got to be kidding me. He said, didn't I tell you, though, when we got married, if the country ever got in trouble, I felt I owed it something. And uh, Hitler's crazy and the Japanese will be in this before we know. So he gives up a vice presidency, gets to be a second lieutenant and put him in Brooklyn Navy Yard. And Pearl Harbor happens in 41. It looks like he's going to stay there because he's 40 years old with no experience. 
So that wasn't my dad's style. So one of his classmates had stayed in and was the top guy in Naval Bureau personnel in Washington. So I called him and he said, John, he said, what do you got for an old fart in the action? I got to get in the action. He said, Ted, let me look and see what I can do. He called back a few days later and he said, Ted, to be honest with you, all I have for a guy with your experience is a suicide group going into the Marshall Islands. <laughs> <And so laughs> oh, my father said, you got your man. Of course, he didn't tell my mother, but they gave him 12 LCIs, these landing craft infantry, and, and they led the Marines and the Frogmen, which were the SEALs nowadays, into Saipan, Kwajalein, Anahuit, Tactinian. 70% of his men were killed or wounded. And uh, I have a picture of when I was, you know, five years old, because he was gone, you know, for two and a half years. You couldn't commute in those days uh, in a Navy outfit, saluting him as he came home. Uh, and so uh, I knew he was really kind of special. And uh, But I'll never forget, uh, uh, <laughs> Jeff, I... I uh, I had an interesting upbringing. I went to a, a 90, 90% Jewish elementary school in New Rochelle, New York, right outside of New York City. And we merged in junior high school with a 90%, uh, 95% uh, African-American elementary school that actually went in 61 to test a neighborhood school. And that's what started the busing thing. And uh, I was a basketball player and I was smart. so. I won all the elections as a compromise candidate. So, <laughs> so I, I win the president of the seventh grade and I come home and I tell my dad who, uh, you know, after the war, uh, he went back to, uh, you know, to work for a while. And he came home, he said to my mom, ah, he said, I quit again. He said a bunch of draft dodgers there. So he rejoined the Navy again. But uh, I came home and I told him, I said, dad, I won the president of the seventh grade. grade. And he said, Ken, this is the beginning of your leadership lessons. Now that you're president, don't ever use your position because great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. And I never forget that. He said, Ken, if I acted like it was a big deal with my men and all, he said, if we got into battle, they'd shoot me before the enemy. He <laughs> said, leadership is all about we, not me, which is a pretty amazing for a guy, a kid in seventh grade to, to learn. And then I went into, into, uh, you know, won the president of the junior high and the chosen to give the graduation speech and president of the 10th grade and the president of the school and give the graduation speech. And my father was always there, you know, saying, okay, Ken, you know, remember what it's all about, you know? And, uh, and my mother was an interesting character. They met on the train, uh, while my father was, uh, uh, in, in graduate school, he was commuting from West Point where his folks were down in the city. And my mother was uh, German and her family, her father was a cop in Fordham. And <laughs> so he saved some money and, he, and, and so that he could get a little cottage on the Hudson River uh, so the family could get out of the heat in the summer. And so my mom uh, she was the only one who graduated from high school. She had four brothers and they all quit before they got out of high school because they needed to work, you know? Right. So she was an executive secretary for Cosmopolitan magazine, but she went and stayed with my mother out on the Hudson river. And my dad would get on the train uh, in Highland falls and go head into New York, you know, for a summer internship. And my mother would get on the train. The minute my mother got on the train, it never was the same. People were singing and all that. I mean, she was, a, she made extroverts uh, 
<laughs> you know. And my father said to a friend, who's that dizzy flapper? And this guy said, he's not dizzy. That's Dottie Heidenreich. She's really, he said, could you introduce me? So he did. My father rode into the city with my mom. And at the end, uh, she had her sneakers on and her high heels in a, in a bag. And she said, nice to meet you and ran off. Never thinking to see him again. Here's a guy, Naval Academy, Harvard Business School. She's a high school graduate. He's waiting at the train for when she's going back home because he never met anybody like her. And so they ended up getting married, you know, and she was a great man. She said to me, Ken, don't you ever act like you're better than anybody else, but don't you let anybody else like they're back, like they're better than you. God didn't make any junk. There's a pearl of goodness in every human being. Dig for it and you'll find it. And that's been my philosophy of, of life, that one-two punch between the two of them. It's kind of long telling those stories, but they they were pretty amazing uh, uh, people in my uh, my life. My mom died at 95. My dad uh, at high blood pressure after the war. He eventually died in uh, 79, I think it was, for us, a stro- on a stroke at 76 or 77 years old. But uh, what an impact that they had on my my life and my thinking, you know, and they were just pretty amazing. It sounds like you got the best genes out of both sides of that, of that couple, that, that union. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, and you see so many people who have bad family setups, you know, and, and they didn't get anything out of it. So I feel really blessed uh, that, that I was able to have a great mom and dad and, you know, all. And then you uh, you were able to take those life lessons. And I think so much of, I think uh, you guys had a family motto. Didn't you have a Winston Churchill family motto back in the day? Uh, never give up. Was that one of your family mottos? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never, never, never give up, you know. And uh, my father said, and my mother said, you can do anything you want, you know, never give up, you know. I was, I was going to say that, that the idea behind that, though, today, it seems like, one, You've taken that and you've been able to apply it not only in your own personal life, but in the lives of so many others. And we've gone through, obviously, a really trying time in the last year. Um, what, what is it about the inner fortitude of some people and the need to have coaches in their life to be there? Like you had your mom and your dad early age, and then you had good leaders as you, as you grew up. What is it about that, the expectation that we as leaders should have to go in and be that voice of encouragement? Uh, versus that kind of autocratic style of approach. What have you learned about that in, over the course of your life that makes a difference? What I think is that, is that the people that are autocratic and all, uh, they think all the brains are in their office, you know, and uh, it's an ego issue. I don't know. I, I ended up, we ended up for fun starting a 12-step Egos Anonymous program, you know, because <laughs> I think it's the biggest addiction in, in the world, you know. And there's two aspects of ego. One is false pride when you act like you're more than somebody, you're brighter than, you know, all that kind of thing. And then the other one, which a lot of people wouldn't think is an ego problem, was fear or self-doubt when you have a less than philosophy and all. But if you have a less than philosophy and all, you're, you're constantly thinking about yourself. And what's really interesting is that the guy that wrote, I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, years ago said the worst life position is I'm okay you're not which is false pride you know and all the data shows that people that act like that are really covering up not okay feelings about themselves and so what I've learned with people with big egos is to you know try to get 
to them and get to know them and help them understand that they're okay because what they really don't believe is that they are and they're covering up you know by power and all that because they don't want anybody to know that they don't know what they're doing and they don't realize that you know I wrote a book with Colleen Barrett who became president of Southwest Airlines when Herb stepped down and yeah. she'd been his executive secretary for 20 plus years and Herb didn't want some you know Jack Welch lookalike coming in to take it over you know he wanted somebody to take care of the people which which is Colleen and she had a great saying which ties into this she said Ken People admire your skills, but they love your vulnerability. Mm. If you say to your people, you know, we got a problem and I wish I had all the answers, but I don't, I could really use your help. They don't say, how come this idiot's our manager? They say, (laughs) this is going to be fun. You know, we're going to get the help. And uh, I think that's what's really uh, so powerful. I think when you really get that, uh, uh, there's a pearl of goodness in everybody and not all the brains are in your office. Isn't that great? And so I think so many of us though, because of our own biology, the self-preservation orientation that we're almost set on at birth, we feel like we've, we've got to have the answers. We've got to have the credibility. We've got to, we've got to make sure everybody knows they can count on us. And so as a result, we take on too much and we do too many things and we put on too many facades and we don't use I think I've always said this. I think you say it a lot as well as like all of us are a lot smarter than, than one of us, right? Yeah. You miss out on so much genius that so much genius that, that God puts in your path in the form of the people around you, right? Well, it's fun. My, my mom used to say, Ken, why don't you write more books by yourself? Because of this 65 plus I've written, I've only written two by myself, one on golf. So many people held my golf game. I didn't know who to help, you know, write it with. And then my spiritual journey, but I've co-authored everything else. Because I said, Mom, I already know what I know. I want to learn. Uh, and so I've learned so much from amazing people like Colleen Barrett. And I wrote a book with a Druid Kathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. And, you know, uh, you know, just uh, just amazing, uh, amazing people. Uh, Don Shula, the old Miami Dolphins coach, you know, and just uh, wonderful people that I could really learn uh, from. And so uh, that that's what really makes life fun is that uh, I wrote a book with Norman Vincent Peale. He was 86 years old when I met him. We wrote a book called The Power of Ethical Management, Integrity Pays. You don't have to cheat cheat to win. And of course, he wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. And uh, and he he just was an amazing uh, guy. And he just felt that that, uh, the people really uh, are good, you know, and you need to find, just like my mom, you know, the first time I introduced them to each other was really, they're both the same age. Uh, and uh, uh, it was, uh, he was giving a sermon up at Robert Shuler's Hour of Power, you know. Yeah. And my mom and dad had watched uh, that when they were living in Florida. And so afterwards, we went into Shuler's to to meet, meet Norman. And, and when uh, he saw my mom, he said, Mrs. B., I've been so excited to shake your hand. And my mother said, shake your hand. I'm going to give you a hug. And he said, give you a hug. I'm going to give you a kiss. And I have this picture here, like right here of the two of them that uh, I just uh, so uh, enjoy just having it uh, nearby. But here they here they both were at. Uh, Isn't that something? That age, you know, and, and, uh, so it's uh, it's it's just 
Wonderful. That's why I like to talk to people like you, because I can learn from you. You know, you're a guy who hasn't been sitting around on your hands. You've been trying to learn, too. But Norman said, if you stop learning, lie down and let them put the dirt on you because you're already <laughs> dead. You know, <laughs> that's so I, true. You know, I mean, I just celebrated not long ago the 60th anniversary of my 21st birthday. How about people, that? People say, when are you going to retire or stop doing so? I said, are you kidding me? You know, I wrote a book called Refire, Don't Retire. And I got that idea from Zig Ziglar because he invited Margie and I to his 80th uh, birthday, which he said was the 59th anniversary of his 21st birthday. So I called Zig. I was 65 at that time. And I said, Zig, we're excited about your birthday party. I said, you're going to retire? He said, there's no mention of it in the Bible, except for Jesus, Mary, and David. Nobody under 80 made an impact. He said, I'm refiring, not retiring. <laughs> so I, I dedicated the book, Refire, Don't Retire, to, to Zig, because he had passed away by the time I wrote it. Oh, that's great. You know, it's all how you look at things, right? I think, who was it? I think it was Wayne, was it Wayne Dyer, I think, that said, uh, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at start to change. Yeah, Wayne was quite a guy. Uh, he was at the first young president's uh, university I ever went to. We became close. He was a wonderful guy. We would call, talk when he was in Hawaii, and sorry to see him pass, pass away. He was a wonderful thinker, I think. I just love, yeah, I love uh, people like that, 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 that. I put you on that Mount Rushmore of thinkers and uh, you, 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 you don't probably consider yourself as such, but I, I think you know that you probably belong there. And when it comes to the, the things and ideas and the work that you've done, one of the big ones was situational leadership. I want to get into that a little bit because that was really an evolution over a number of years, right? As you discovered how people learn and how people behave in the workforce and how to be a better leader, you found out that it wasn't just that, that there's a one size fits all, that it really come, came down to the context around the situation. Tell, tell us a little bit how you evolved into that thinking. Well, we call it uh, SL2, which is our approach to where Paul Hersey's family still has their, and they, they, got the term situational leadership. But uh, that's an interesting story because uh, uh, when I uh, got out of college, I, I, I said, man, I, I like to work at a university. I would say, you better go to graduate school. But I never studied that much and couldn't take tests very well. And, and uh, so I got provisionally accepted for a master's degree at Colgate. Uh, and it was in education after I, I was a government major, which was really interesting. I get in these education courses and they were kind of boring. So I'm sitting at the bar at the Colgate Inn moaning and there's a, a young prof, uh, a professor whose wife was backpacking up and he had just gotten his doctor's degree from Illinois and I'm complaining to him. And he said, why don't you come and major with me? I said, what do you teach? He said, sociology. I said, what is that? He said, we study groups and leadership. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. I said, I could do this. He said, yeah, I could do that. So I ended up getting a master's in sociology. So I said, okay, I'm ready to go to the university and be a, a dean or something. And they said, no, you need a doctor's degree. I said, a doctor's degree? you got to be kidding me. Those people are really bright, you know. They walk across the stage, shake the – and they said, no, you need – so, I, of course, I applied. couldn't get anywhere. But I had taken a course one summer to lighten my load when I was an undergrad uh, from a guy who headed up the educational leadership department at Cornell – and I called him and I said, Don, could you get me provisionally accepted into your department for my doctor's degree? <laughs> and we had only been, a, it was a summer course, there had only been about 10 in the class. So we got to know, oh, he said, sure, Ken, I'll, get, I'll make that happen. So I got provisionally accepted into everything. But uh, 
I decided I wanted to work at a university. But my professors all said, if you want to work at a university, you should be an administrator because you can't write. <laughs> uh, and later find out you could understand it. And that probably was confusing to them. Uh, and uh, so but my first job, I went to Ohio University as assistant to the dean of the College of Business. When I got there, he said, Ken, I want you to teach a course. And I had never thought about teaching a course because if you don't publish, you perish. You know? He said, I don't care anything about that. I want you to teach. So Paul Hersey had just arrived as chairman of the management department, put me in Hersey's department, teach a management course, which was fine for me because I had done my doctoral dissertation on Fred Fiedler, who was the first situational leadership theorist. And uh, after two weeks, I came home and I said to my wife, Margie, boy, this is what I ought to do. Teaching is really fun. She said, what about the writing? I said, I don't know. I'll figure something out. So I had heard Hersey taught a great course uh, in leadership. So I asked him in the in the December 67, could I sit in his course the next semester? He said, nobody audits my course. You want to take it for credit, you're welcome. You know, when I walked away, I thought it was interesting. I have a doctor's degree and he didn't. So I went home and told Margie, she said, well, is he any good? I said, he's supposed to be great. She said, well, get your damn ego out of the way and take his course. And you, can tell, <laughs> you can tell I married the right person. That's right. Well, I had to talk to the registrar into letting me in because I already had a PhD. So I took Hershey's course and uh, it was actually in 67. Uh, and uh, wrote all the papers. And in June 67, Paul comes into my office. He said, Ken, he said, I've been teaching leadership for 10 years and they want me to write a textbook. And, you know, writing's never been my big thing. And I've been looking for a good writer like you to be a co-author. Would you co-author with me? And I said, God, we should be quite a team. Let's do it. So we ended up writing a book called Management of Organizational Behavior, which I think it's in its 10th edition now. It sells more today than it did back then. So I went to the dean. I told him I quit because I got a book coming out. I'm going to be a faculty member. He said, you can't quit. I said, why not? He said, because I was going to fire you. I said, really? He says, yeah, because you're a lousy administrator, which I was. <laughs> <laughs> and so I ended up uh, teaching. And, and then I went to the University of Massachusetts from, from Ohio U. And, and then I went on a one-year sabbatical to California from the University of Massachusetts. I I become a full professor with tenure at 36 years old. You just didn't do that kind of thing. And and Margie had just finished her PhD, my wife. And so we went for one year. And that's when we went and met this young president's, one president, young president's group. And they just kind of adopted us. And they said, you guys ought to be teaching and, and, and doing stuff around the world with all these presidents and all. And what are you going to do at the end of the year? We said, we're going back to the university. And they said, no, you're not. You're going to start your own company. He said, start our own company. How we can't even balance our own checkbook. How are we going to do that? <laughs> no, they said, we'll help you. And five corporation presidents, one from San Diego, one from Oregon, one from Mexico City, <clears throat> one from Pennsylvania, one from Illinois. Flew to California. So our advisory board helped set our company up. This is the 42nd year of our company, you know, we got, you know, our son's now the president and our daughter's running our the marketing department and Margie's brother, who was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, he's our CEO. So it's a family run company, but, you know, we got over 200 people and people all over the, the world. So, I mean, life is, I think, Jeff, is what plan, what happens to you when you're planning on doing something else. And so yeah. don't, I tell people, you know, how do you be successful? I said, don't get your head down and grind it. You know, do hard work, but keep your head up because you never know what opportunity might come your way that you hadn't even thought of. Yeah, let me look at you all these years later from a guy who couldn't write. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, there's a couple of good life lessons in there, right? You, you were told multiple times along the path that you shouldn't do that. You're not any good at that. You should do that. Well, no, you know, you should go do what makes your passion come alive, right? What fills your tank up. And is, yeah. that, is that good advice you give for most people? Yeah, so the biggest advice is to find work where you're confused about the difference between work and play. You know, because then you really love what you do, but make sure you have balance between that and your family and don't get so into it that you lose your family in the process, which happens to some, some people. And, but I'm lucky to have Margie who said, you better get home. Right. Keep, you got to keep that balance. Right. Now, let's make no make make no mistake. I've got a daughter who's a sophomore at Ohio State, the Ohio State University. Uh, you want to find something that you love, the balance between work and play. But the, make no mistake that in order for it to be work, there does have to be a paycheck. Right. That's attached to it. <laughs> if you can find somebody to pay you to do. What's That's the key. <laughs> you know, and so I've I've just been amazed, you know, that uh, over the years that people have paid me to come and speak to their people and paid me to write books with great people. And, you know, I just can't, we just got a, a contract on a book with Barry Kohler, which is my favorite uh, publisher uh, with Steve Parasante. You know, the working title for me was duh. Why isn't common sense, common practice. But <clears throat> doing a title search, they found out that duh doesn't transfer internationally. So now it's called, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, becoming a great servant leader, you know, 52 ways to, to, uh, to lead and, and build trust, you know, and so. I would like to see the, uh, the notes, though, of all the, all the times they tried to translate duh and all the other languages just to see what words they came up with in all those other languages, right? I bet, yeah, but it's, uh, I think that's the biggest problem. Don't you find a lot of people say, whoa, that's really good stuff. I said, well, how often you use it? People go up to me and say, I, I love your books. And I say, oh, thank you and all. Tell me, what what concept did you learn that you've really had tremendous success using? And I want to tell you, I get a lot of blank looks, you know? I mean, and so uh, talk, my father said, talk is cheap, but it takes money to buy whiskey, you know? I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got to learn to do something, you know? Well, and that's, that's a great, great point. I think so many times we think about leadership and coaching and developing people and you think about your own, your own path that you're on. Uh, ideas are great. I'm, I'm an ideator. I love to be creative and, let, and come up with great ideas. Um, but at some point, you got to help people activate, right? You got to turn it, turn it into activation. Uh, information by itself is fine. Information that brings inspiration is even better. But information that brings inspiration that leads to activation, well, isn't that the best? Yes. Yeah. No. Now, where have you find that? Where, where do you find companies and people get stuck at the activation phase? Because you've got great ideas. You've written sixty-five books, yeah. right? Where do, where do people get stuck in the activation phase? I think it gets stuck in the human ego of leaders, you know, mm. who uh, somehow think that you know training is a fringe benefit. You know, or we you went through that. Let's go have you do this, and you have done that. You know, and and uh, it's uh, that this doesn't work. The the people that you know, people ask me, you know, because I'm into servant leadership, you know, and all that. Can, you know, who really uses that, you know, servant leadership? I said, well, only the the leaders of, of their industries like Southwest Airlines and in their industry, Nordstrom's in retail and you know, Wegmans in the grocery business, Disney in entertainment, you know, Sonovus in financial services, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, 
the Kaikouk understand that the two parts of serving leadership are first is vision, direction, values, and goals, because leadership's about going somewhere. And that's the responsibility of the hierarchy. It doesn't mean you don't involve people, but if people don't know what they're being asked to do, what good behavior looks like, what's to drive the values to drive their behavior, then shame on you. So that's the leadership part of serving leadership. And then once that's clear, now you turn the pyramid upside down and now you're into the servant part of serving leadership. And now you basically work for your people because, you know, then they can really what? Bring their brains to work because everybody works to the front line people. I I love to, when I first met Herb Kelleher and, and Colleen from Southwest, you know, I, I told them about how much I love their their, their uh, company, you know, because I'll tell you a fun story. When I travel, uh, I have this thing I put around my neck. I call it my geezer pouch. <laughs> In that I, I put my passport if I need it, my license, my itinerary, you know, anything. And I go around airports, what do you need? You know, and I got it. And so one day I loaded my geezer pouch and I left it on my desk at home and I'm pulling into the San Diego airport. And uh, this is a couple of years after 9-11. So they're a little uptight about who you are. And I realized I didn't have any identification. I didn't have time to go home and go and get it. So the only book I've written with my picture on the cover is the one I did with Don Shula, the Miami Dolphins coach. They took our picture in Miami State. So I ran into the bookstore at the San Diego airport. Luckily, they had a copy, so I bought it. <laughs> fortunately, the first airline I had to go to was Southwest, and I was checking a bag out in the street. And the guy said to me, can I see your identification? I said, yeah, I apologize. I don't have a license or a passport. But I said, how is this? And I held up the book, and this guy shouts out, this man knows Don Shula. Put him in first class. I mean, they didn't even have, you know, their business select thing. And they're high-fiving me in the street. And there's an old guy there who said, uh, I know the security guards upstairs. I'll get you through there. And he walked me through there, you know. And the next day, I had to go another airline before they overnight my stuff to me. And when I held up the book, uh, you can always tell an organization run by egomaniacs because if you got a problem, uh, and you go to a frontline person, they don't solve it. They're a duck. They go, quack, quack, it's our policy. Quack, quack, I just work here. So right. I showed this book, and this guy goes, quack, you better go to the ticket counter. And I showed the woman the ticket counter. She says, quack, you better talk to my supervisor. We call our the supervisory duck the head mallard because they quack at a higher level. Pretty soon, I'm talking to a guy in a suit and a tie, you know. And I said, you really think I superimpose my picture on the book? <laughs> To get by you, come on, give me a break. So he finally let me through. But but that's just that difference, you know, when you actually turn that pyramid upside down. And the great organizations, the people up front in Nordstrom's, they say no problem. The frontline person can can take care of it. You know, at Disney, they'll say, let me show you. You know, and and uh, it's just uh, it's fabulous to see. It's that empowerment, right? Because I think people all people are all wired for a couple things, right? They're wired for love. They're wired for connection. They're wired for purpose. But they're wired to make an impact. And when you empower them to do that that way, not only does it help your business run more effectively and efficiently, but it actually fuels people's individual fire to to that sense of belonging and purpose, right? Absolutely. They 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 get really excited about coming to work. You know, Jeff, and you probably found this. The best companies and the most uh, successful companies I work for, their number one customer is their people. 
you know, they realize if you take care of your people, train your people, love on your people, then they'll go out of your, their way to take care of the number two most important customer you have, the people who buy your products and services. And those people then become raving fans of you and become part of your sales force. And that takes care of the profit and the owners and all. And a lot of people say, no, the reason for being business is to make money. I say baloney. Profit is the applause you get for creating a motivating environment for your people so they take good care of your customers. I mean, that's one of those duh uh, examples, you know. That's great. Yeah, that's great. But we lose sight of that, right? Because the stress and the pressure of, of, of running a business, of life, and we're, we're not trained to think like that. And so when we're under pressure, we always resort to our highest level of training. And so most people's highest level of training, because they haven't had good leadership, is to act like the people that trained them, right? Which is transactional. It's, you know, and, and then you're spiking cortisol all over the place. And then actually you become less productive, which was the antithesis of what you were hoping for at the beginning of the whole thing, right? Right. Yeah, it really is. A, it's a, it's a, it's amazing when you really think about it. Now, when you look at your life's journey, what are some? Who, who are some people that you would have never guessed you would ever have met early in life? And now here you are. One day you're sitting across from this person. You can't believe it. Like, what, where was the first time you met somebody like that? Where you're like, I can't believe I'm actually having a conversation with this person. Who was someone like that? Well, I think it really started when I started to you know, write books and things like that, you know, and, and, uh, I, uh, I guess the first key person I, that I, that I met that I looked up to was, uh, was Bill Bradley because I was a basketball player. Oh yeah. And, uh, I, uh, uh, played freshman at Cornell and then, uh, uh, the uh, varsity coach did, didn't see all the great skills I had. So I decided that I would play fraternity ball and all, but my senior year, uh, he asked me to help coach the freshmen. In fact, a fun thing of because they're doing well is we played Syracuse two or three times because they didn't want freshman teams. To, and Jim Beheim was the sixth man on the Syracuse freshman team that we played. So I coached against Beheim. Uh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> when, he, when, he, when he was a when he was a freshman, and, and then when I was getting my doctor's degree, I organized a, uh, a graduate team uh, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, to play teams around the, the county, you know, because they all the little towns around Cornell uh, had had teams, you know. So I'm organizing a team and I'm walking down to into college town. And I see this huge African-American guy. And uh, so since I had played with him, I just went right across the street and introduced myself. Turned out to be Harry Edwards, you know, a guy who helped boycott the the Olympics and all right. that kind of thing. And he was a all-American, it's I think San Jose or somewhere, and, and uh, <clears throat> end up being a professor and all that. But he was getting a master's in race relations at Cornell from Robin Williams, who was known. And I said, uh, uh, how would you like to play for us? He said, sure, man, I'll play. And I tell you, we would go into these gyms in these little towns, and they had never seen anybody that big uh, before. And uh, we got to play the freshman uh as the prelim to Bill Bradley's last visit to Cornell as a senior at Princeton. He was all American. He had made 56, six straight foul shots. Wow. That's great. And so they opened the door uh, uh, for uh, the game against Princeton that night at six o'clock. And they asked us to play the freshmen, my graduate teams. And, 
And at 6.30, they closed the door because they had the largest crowd in the history of Cornell, 15,000 people. <laughs> and they had to watch our game, you know. And uh, so it was really, uh, it was really fun uh, to, to do that. And, uh, you know, I knew a lot of people and I was a player coach. And when I put myself in the game, the crowd would go crazy, you know. But, but off of that, I got the chance to meet, uh, meet Bradley, you know. That's great. And uh, he was he was quite a quite a guy, you know, and uh, ended up becoming a senator and right. all that kind of thing. But uh, um, it's a, it's just a, it's just fun, I think. It and my what I have found is that all of the great ones, I don't know what you think, um, most of them are really humble people. Otherwise, I don't think they would have gotten where they are. I've never seen a lot of people who have been super successful you know, in the long run, who have been really arrogant, self-serving, you know, they might in the short run, but not in the long run where people talk about them. Well, that's the old proverb, right? Pride comes before the fall. <clears throat> so at some point you end up getting knocked down a few pegs. If you, if you try to, I, I like to say a lot that I learned the hard way that you, know, you can pursue success and never find significance. But if you start to pursue significance, success nearly always follows. Yes. Yes. And uh, uh, did you ever meet Bob Buford? No, have not. Well, he wrote a book called Halftime, and he said that we're all in the locker room until we're about 50, uh, and we want to move out for the second half, uh, and we want to move from success to significance. That's it. And uh, and uh, so he he said, Ken, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me asking the brightest member of your family to be on our board. So Margie was on the halftime board, <laughs> and halftime they developed, and they still do wonderful seminars to help people move from success to significance and all. And Margie said to him that with women, they want to move from, from, from significance to success because they've been raising the family and all that. And they'd like to, you know, have to do something. And so she, it's been a lot of fun, but I think that whole uh, concept of moving from success to significance to eventually from my spiritual part to surrender when yeah. you realize that God didn't make any junk, that you got a partner here. Yeah, and I was going to ask you as we kind of go down this path a little bit, um, you know, Rick Warren wrote the great book, Purpose Driven Life, and the opening page, it says, it's not about you. And you look at the world that, especially over the last few years, and just the, 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 the divisive nature of what you and I know is not are, it's really not how we're wired. We're wired to be in unity. We're wired to be in community. We're wired to give and serve and love. And yet, if you just follow the media and you follow what's out there externally, you'd swear it was the opposite. And in your lifetime, you know, you've learned a lot of life lessons, but over the past even couple of years, what advice would you give to, to this next generation of folks coming up is we're, we're, we're in such a toxic environment. Like how do you make a positive impact when you feel like you're surrounded by so much negativity and disunity? Well, I tell you, I've, I've been working on a paper called healing American democracy, because I think what you're saying is that in the past, uh, in Washington, it's been led by egos. I mean, people are more interested in getting elected than they are solving problems, mm. you know, and working for the people and and all that, you know. And I hope that you know Biden will set a different kind of a uh, of an example. But but uh, you know the way you the way you see things, you know, the way they vote and all that kind of thing, rather than you know recognizing that uh, okay. 
we're all different and we might even not agree and all, but we all come from the same show. Uh, we have a wonderful pastor in town by the name of Miles McPherson. I don't know if you're running into Miles, but he played uh, uh, football for the San Diego Chargers and he has the biggest church in San Diego called the Rock, Ch Rock Church. And you can't be a member there unless you're involved in, in doing something to help people in the community. Uh, but uh, he wrote a book recently called The Third Option. And the first option is, you know, I'm who I am and you're who you are, you know, and we're different. And we, if we disagree, it's not only we disagree, but we're different people. And the third option is we all are beautiful. We all have that pearl of goodness. My mother came in. And if you could realize that in people, then you'd say, I disagree. Let's talk. But I don't have to attack you as a human being. Let's let's get it to the point where we can have a have a dialogue. And and right now it's all about ego. It's all about me, 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 rather than we, we, we. Well, and that's what you know. I, I you know I, we were talking about this in the pre-show. I just love communication, and I love helping people communicate with more purpose and more power and more impact. And, and I think. Um, you know, I think uh, we had Dr. Rick Rigsby on not too long ago, and he talks about how um, pride is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity is his quote. <laughs> I love that concept. As a communicator, you know, our pride just gets the best of us and causes us to communicate in a way that elicits a negative response. And there is such a thing as emotional contagion. Uh, you know, your emotions are contagious around you and the energy you put out is what you tend to get back. And it's like we're in this vicious cycle right now of negative emotion when you and I and people like us are wired for catching people doing good and wanting to be an encouragement and wanting to do those things that help. And when you talk about being a great leader and a great coach, it's the same thing as a politician, right? It's the same thing as a pastor. It's the same thing as you have to try to catch, you have, you're, you're big on catching people doing good, right? That's one of your big as a leader, right? Where did that kind of click for you? Or was it kind of always there? Or you just had never really defined it? No, I, I just really always felt that you needed to catch people doing things right and cheer them on because I was always caught doing things right. And and, uh, and my mom and dad were great cheerleaders for me. And they taught me how to be a great cheerleader for, for other people uh, too. And for example, I wrote a book recently called Servant Leadership in Action. And I got 45 key people in our field to write articles, you know, including people like Simon Sinek and Brene Brown and Marshall Goldsmith and Patrick Lencioni and Lori Beth Jones, you know, and people said, how did you get all those people to agree to write a, a book or you were the editor and all? Because I'm not competitive. I want them to win, you know, and they yeah. don't see me as out there to try to put them down. I'm sort of saying, you know, wow, you know, what? how can we help all of us, you know? And uh, so uh, it, it always comes back to you. I think if you if you help support other people, it's amazing the good that comes back your way. Yeah, it's funny how systems set up that way, isn't it? Yeah, my mother said, "Now, when you do something good for somebody else, don't expect something good to come back." But she said, "You're amazed with the good that will come back." <laughs> yeah, it's almost like uh, somebody somebody upstairs built a system to try to reinforce a positive behavior. <laughs> isn't that right? Well, as we kind of land the plane here toward the end of our time, um, you know, what what advice would you have? And I, and I want I want you to think about it in terms of 
both a new leader maybe who's in their first position as a leader, and then you got the kind of person who's been in that position for a long time who's a veteran, and then you got the person towards the end of their career. Give, give me some stages of advice you might give, and maybe it's the same advice for all three of those people, but what advice would you give that really make an impact in their in their time left here on this planet? Well, I, I really think that the same advice goes is that we're, no matter whether they're beginning or they're in the middle of their career and successful or they're ending it, it's all about we, not me. Uh, and to realize that, uh, you know, you're only as successful as the people that you work with are able to accomplish the goals and, and uh, just, just, you know, get out of your own way. Uh, and uh, that to say that together is better, you know, I mean, I, that's one of Simon Sinek's titles of one of, one of his, uh, his books, which is, you know, and, in our company, we say one plus one is greater than two, which is an old saying. And, and uh, you know, that uh, uh, it's, it's just a matter of just, just realizing that uh, you are lucky to have an opportunity to be a leader, but you're lucky to have the people that you have. And how can you bring out the best in them? So together, uh, is, as Simon would say, you're better. That's great. And it's, it's easy, again, e- easier said than done, right? So it's about a mindset of focusing uh, each day on you know gratitude and recognizing the strengths around you and the team and the people, and then trying to develop the best in them. So really the last question I have for you is, tell us a little bit, g- give us a couple of pearls of wisdom for how Ken Blanchard runs his day to where you say, this is how you've been able to be so productive and prolific for so long. What, what are some tips you found from a productivity standpoint that really help people? Well, that's another advice I would have given those three uh, people is that uh, when I worked with Norm and Vincent Peale, we came up with that we have two selves. We have an external task-oriented self that's used to getting jobs done. And we have a thoughtful, reflective self. Which of those two selves do you think wakes up quicker in the, in the morning? The alarm goes off, you know, and boom, you jump into your task-oriented self. Right. The mind said, why don't we call the alarm clock the opportunity clock, or it's going to be no alarm, and you jump into your task-oriented self, and you're trying to eat while you're washing, and you jump in your car in the old days when you went to the office, and you're on the phone and all, and you're running this meeting, that meeting here and there, and you get home at night, and you're absolutely exhausted, and you fall into bed. You don't have a enough energy to even to say goodnight to somebody who might be laying lying next to you the next day, boom, you're at it again. And pretty soon you get caught in a rat race. And uh, Lily Talman, the great philosopher from Hollywood, she said one time, the problem with a rat race is even if you win it, you're still a rat. <laughs> right. So one of the ways that's really helped me is I try to enter my day slowly. When I get up, you know, I, I uh, you know, like to sit in the side of the bed and put my hands down on my side and Think about what uh, what that this day is all about, and what 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 I got planned, and how I want to be seen, and all, you know. And and uh, and uh, then I, you know, I I, I kind of sort of say to the good Lord, give me a hand too, you know. And, uh, and then I put my hands up and I said, you got any suggestions? Give it to me, you know. And I just try to enter my day slowly, thinking about the day, thinking about who I want to be. Uh, I think it's important to have a mission statement. My mission statement is to be a loving teacher, an example of simple truths that helps myself and others to awaken to the presence of God in our lives and to realize we're here to serve, not to be served. And I read that to make sure that that's nearby so I know what, what business I'm in. And then my 
four values are pure spiritual peace, integrity, love, and joy. And I want to make sure I'm living those. And then a friend of mine said, uh, Blanchard, you've ruined my life for a long time. I never used to write a journal because, you know, I'm competitive and people write in four colors in poetry. He said, I know how to write a journal now. And I started doing it. It's pretty powerful. You write the date at the top of the page and then you put praisings. What did I do today that's consistent with who I wanted to be today and who I want to be in the world? And then redirections. What did I do today? Wish I had an instant replay that I could do over. And I want to tell you, uh, really, if Jeff, if you track praisings and redirections on a daily basis, you'll get to see the patterns that, that you want to work on and you'll figure a way to overcome them. And it's a really powerful kind of thing. So I think it's important for me as I try to enter my day slowly and I try to end it slowly. Uh, and when I do that, I really feel centered. Do I do that every day? I have to admit someday <laughs> I'm out there <laughs> myself, you know. That's really good. I think that's that mindset, right? Preparing yourself and your mindset for what's available to you that day and soaking in some of that external resource that's available to us all, whether that's you know spiritual for guys like you and I or wherever you pull that source from and stop trying to do so much. Be a human being instead of a human doing and get your mindset right as you get up in the morning. And and then and then how, how much value can you add to other people throughout the day? I think that's a great, yeah. great approach. Well, Ken, I tell you, I, I could do this all day long. I could do it multiple times a week with you. Uh, you've just been such a wealth of of a wisdom and inspiration to so many of us, myself included. And, and thank you very much for being, being on today. You're welcome back anytime you want to come back. Well, it was uh, fun. I think we went longer than you probably anticipated, but uh, life is a special occasion. And when you're in the middle of it, don't let it stop. <laughs> so, you, you don't. I, I, I would do this all and on and on and on and on again. So yeah, well, let's get together again. That'd be fun. And I'll see if I can get you on one of our podcasts too. Well, I'd be honored to be a guest. So uh, thanks again. And Ken, you're welcome back anytime. And thanks for everything you're doing. All right. Bless you. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.